Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. Every week we're here providing some kind of perspective on the events and technology behind the energy transition. Uh, my name is Peter White. I'm the CEO at Rethink and uh, I work with a team of analysts on uh, Rethink Energy. Harry Morgan. Harry. Hello. Hello. Harry covers wind and hydrogen. Uh, Andres. Hello there. Andrew Swantanar, who covers solar and a couple of other subject areas, and our publisher Simon Thompson, who always gives us his view of this week's issue. On the show today, we're going to discuss some research we've done, which shows that the world's just not making enough lithium-ion battery, and it's unlikely to catch up until way past 2025, and we'll look at the implications of that. We also ask, what's the chances of uh, Joe Biden's new budget being approved and what effect will it have on renewals? Harry's going to talk to us about that. And we're going to look at some fresh data on how much solar the large Chinese providers are producing in 2022. So the first piece, we really simply set out to do a gigafactory count, look at how many um, batteries are being made. This is a piece of piece that I worked on. We can't really reconcile the numbers with companies who um, basically count how much has physically been produced of battery each year. Um, but we get very close to those numbers with something like 251 gigawatt hours of battery being made in China in 2021. And we can see that rising quite rapidly, 381 547 uh, and then ending at 923 in 2025. So there's aggressive build out of factories and a lot of lines are established by companies like um, the two largest are CATL and LG Energy Solutions and of course Panasonic who mostly works out of Japan. So all these, uh, we didn't do a China count, we did a China, Korea, Japan count because that part of the world seems to be quite healthy and sharing and moving between those uh, countries. But when we got to Europe, we found uh, a great surprise. We're in pretty good shape in Europe. We're making more and more batteries and factories are coming online. And over the next five years, we should be able to meet the kind of uh, volumes of cars which um, the European countries are likely to buy. Uh, It's going up rapidly, about 5% per country per year of, of all cars bought are an additional 5% are EVs each year. So it's it's a very aggressive because most of the European Union have already passed a law saying after 2035 in, internal combustion engine cars um, will be illegal, can't, can't be produced. It's only when you get to America you start to see this aggressive shortfall where you suddenly find people who are putting a spade in the ground now are claiming they're going to produce 40, 50, 20, 25 gigawatt hours in 2025-2026, looking at the ramping speeds of those factories, probably launching one line at a time, we find a massive shortfall. Now, how do we measure that shortfall? The USA producing uh, 73 gigawatt hours of battery in 2021. It's nothing like enough. We know that the cars they produced, the EVs they produced in 2021, required 103 gigawatt hours of battery. So that trend is set to continue, and it's going to go right through to 2025. They, they have plenty of bat- factories, gigafactories started, but depending on how rapidly they ramp 
problem, and that depends on availability of cash. And this is mostly to the disadvantage of the big three car companies in America, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. So I was going to say, so now we're at this point where we've seen batteries fall sort of ninety percent in cost over the past sort of five, ten years, and we're at this point where they're really being commoditized across the automotive industry. Does that mean that the cost of batteries is going to become constrained due to the fact that it is commoditized in these markets? We become become much more focused on the sort of supply demand um, characteristics of the market rather than necessarily the actual te- technology costs that are falling. That, that's the big issue. You know, what if supply and demand, we've seen supply and demand working in the natural gas market, in the oil market, in the coal market this year, and all it means is a huge increase in price and in the polysilicon market. Instead of this being a learning curve where people learn to make batteries cheaper and then compete with one another aggressively, this is not shaping up to look like that. A lot of these um, gigafactories are being sponsored by car companies. Companies that are good at making batteries are getting access to the funds to build a new factory, whether it's in China, Korea, America, Europe, from a car company. And so this is pre-organising an amount of capacity for them. But the count we did was only passenger cars. There's barely any um, battery left for trucks or for light commercial vehicles. There's almost none left for the grid. You'd need another 20% more capacity than than we're falling short of already. Um, so to, to satisfy those, and they ramp rapidly through 2021 to 2025. We're really struggling to see how that's gonna play out. And number one, what happens if lithium ion batteries are more expensive in the run up to 2025? Well, EV cars are not gonna be cheaper. And given this effect is mostly in America, it's America that will see a lack of cheap cars. Europe might have cheap cars. China will certainly have cheap cars. I think America's going to have trouble bringing down the price of EVs to continue to differentiate them and make them available to the common man. So subsidies are going to have to go on longer. And if they don't, what's going to happen? Is is it going to stall? Is the whole EV uh, shift to EV going to stall? Well, they can't let it. What do you think the the, the car company should do about this? I think if you're a car company, firstly, you'll you'll need to nail down a supplier. It's it's interesting thinking about whether or not you're going, uh, these companies, especially if you're in the US, are going to look to China uh, for their battery suppliers. We know that they're very much trying to avoid doing that. I think generally uh, starting to explore alternative chemistries, uh, if you're a lithium-ion battery maker, obviously you're going to look to supply to the automotive market rather than uh, the battery storage market purely due to the um, the increased margins you have there. The idea of exploring these alternative chemistries and potentially pushing yourselves further up the supply chain, I, th- I know that's something that Tesla are doing a lot, is looking at... Um, actually securing their own lithium refining capacity. Because if you're responsible for the actual sourcing of your raw materials, your, the production of your own batteries, then it's not going to necessarily have a knock-on impact on your on your, on your vehicles at the end of the day. If you're, a, if you're a company who's been slow to move into electric vehicles you're, and you're dependent on imported batteries from uh, markets that can sort of dictate the prices, then once again, you're going to find yourself sort of behind the market and, sort of, and continuing to lose out to the market leaders. Yeah, well, Toyota is, is the biggest car company in the world. And Toyota has got a plan to make its own solid-state battery. And the chances are that that's not going to be used. They're already producing some, very low numbers. And they're using them in hybrids. They're not using them in their electric vehicles. And suddenly, so they're getting all their batteries from China 
well, we, we, we've heard anecdotes this week that you do a deal with China and suddenly one day the prices go up and they send you a note. Sorry, the prices, we can't honor the contract at that price. And if you don't like it, what do you do? And if they're going to behave like that, that's why American companies want nothing to do with them. They're going for the Korean and Japanese suppliers first. But, you know, where does this leave? Uh, so Tesla is controlling its own supply line. Where does it leave all the new companies? Where does it leave Xpeng, Neo, and and more to the point, Rivian and um, Lucid in the States? I mean, have they already secured their supply line? They make less cars. The big, the biggest risk here is that people like um, so General Motors, that they've thrown their hat in with LG Energy Solutions, Ford with SK Innovations, Stellantis is kind of split between LG Energy and Samsung, uh, and in fact announced a new Canadian factory yesterday. So th those those are giving the the benefit. They're getting all of their innovation from Korean companies. They're not. They're not really doing anything themselves. They say they are. You know, General Motors has got a new design. It's emulating Tesla in that way, but it's just. I mean, at the moment, an LG just just struggles. It goes from disaster to disaster. It had a major recall on a GM vehicle. It's had um, fires at grid um, stations that it supplied the. Um, the battery too. It's just not as sophisticated a supplier as the Chinese. And, and, and here we are saying, yeah, Americans don't want to deal with Chinese companies. They want to deal with Korean companies. Korean companies can't seem to keep up with the Chinese. It's a mess. I think, and I, I think if you're looking at why this, this problem has come about and how we can avoid it in the future, it's, I, I, it goes back to what we said time and time again. I think, it, I genuinely believe that it's to do with the, the forecasting industry. If you're looking back two to three years and you're looking at uh, people looking at how much battery production capacity they're going to build out they were doing so based on forecasts from the IEA from Wood McKenzie who was saying that the penetration of electric vehicles at this point in time would be one percent two percent rising about one percent or two percent a year and we're seeing five percent increases in Europe so it's that's the reason that we're suddenly seeing the demand for electric vehicles being so high and the battery capacity being so small because in terms of a consumer making a decision to purchase a vehicle they're expecting that vehicle to be on their driver within six months. If you're looking at bringing a, pr a battery production facility online, that process takes two years. So it's going to be, so it's now sort of the battery uh, companies playing catch up to actually get back up to speed with where the demand is because they were running off these forecasts two to three years ago that was just simply unrealistic. However, a lot of analysts are just um, recycle old ideas. They talk to say a car company like Ford and Ford we know in early 2020, was still saying, yeah, EVs, we don't really see them taking off for a while yet. And then at the end of January 2020, just after the election, uh, there's Mary Barra saying, oh, we're going to be entirely EV by 2035. Now, they were telling the analysts one thing, and then suddenly they're telling the world another. And it's mostly chasing the Tesla share price. Suddenly, uh, it's like ho holding up a dam. The three Americans are all saying, no, no, won't happen here. And then suddenly one breaks, and then they all break. And they've all come up with major grand strategies, which are going to take two to three years or five years to build out. So isn't it the car companies who are not advising the giving feedback to the uh, research companies who are at fault, really? And, and it's them that's going to suffer because... We've already seen Ford make not enough 
of its eMac and uh, one or two of its other uh, its its uh, EF150 e uh, pickup. So um, and they they're trying to push out a certain number of ICE vehicles and a certain number of electric vehicles and they're selling out of the electric vehicles and they're not selling out of the ICE vehicles. So they're adjusting their, their mix, but they can't adjust their mix if they haven't got the supply lines. So they're going to lose market share and they're going to lose market share to Europeans, Chinese, to Native American uh, EV-only companies like Tesla. They're just going to lose market share. So is this the end of the dominance of the American car industry. I think it's that big. I mean, I think that's, um, I don't want to use up the whole podcast on it, but I think that's what we're, we're seeing. And we were predicting it three years ago. We were saying, if they don't move soon, they'll be too late. They are too late. These are the consequences. The only thing they can do is throw money at it and do what Tesla does, throw a factory up in under two years and get it up to full production in, in an insanely quick time. That's all they can do. Uh, but it, it, if that's not enough, then they just lose market share. So what is the raw materials? Well, what is the bottleneck? Is it raw materials or is it building factories? Building factories that work. Hmm. Uh, so yeah. it's not mining. It's not marginal I, costs. It's just mainly the factories. This piece of research hasn't gone into uh, lithium mining. And uh, as far as I can see, sensing in that market, there's not a major bottleneck there. People are, are um, yes, there are a few materials in the uh, cathode that people have shortages in, but there's plenty of different designs where you can, uh, and you've got a slightly different energy density. I mean, there's another thing that's going to happen is at some point the solid state battery market, about 2024, is suddenly going to flood the market. And no one's going to want liquid electrolyte batteries anymore. So you're building a factory to make a type of battery which may go out of style before the factory is built. <laughs> Just yeah, that's another issue which we've raised in the uh, research piece. Uh, anyway, is, is this caused by? Sorry to keep asking little questions, but is this caused by um, the whole pandemic, lockdown, sort of disruption to the economy, or was it always going to happen? No, that's interesting, Andres, because. Um, the it was really the the first headlines in the pandemic were no one wants to buy EVs anymore, and it was a misunderstanding because China had pulled the plug on um, on subsidies in the first quarter of 2020. When they put them back again in the next quarter, suddenly EVs were the only robust sales. So from about um, May June 2020, everyone's had a very clear signal that the car industry is down between 25 and 35%, depending on which country you're in, uh, globally. And EVs are not. EVs are charging. And that's been obvious since the early part of 2020, which is what, when everyone changed there. But it takes takes a while to put your trousers on one leg at a time. You, you've got to get raise the money. You've got to build a plan. You've got to find suppliers. You've got to do agreements with the suppliers. You've got to raise the money to build the factories and then you've got to tell everyone about it and then you've got to get the customers to buy them it takes it takes three or four or five years to to turn a big ship like General Motors and Stellantis and Ford and that's I mean and Toyota don't, don't get me started on Toyota I think they're insane I think they're going to lose huge amounts of market share um, but um, yeah I don't think it was the pandemic the pandemic if anything made things made things clearer in, in a pro EV way just um, let's let's move on. We've got a new uh, piece of legislation coming from Joe Biden, Harry. Um, why don't you tell us what you think that means for renewables? 
Yeah, so so this week Joe Biden proposed his uh, budget for the 2023 fiscal year. So obviously at this point, the budget, he put out his ideal budget. That's going to be obviously debated in both the House and the Senate and it will be, and things will be taken out. To be honest, most of the stuff around energy is likely to be removed to some extent as we wait on the Build Back Better bill, which has actually become a sort of a key point of contention within this bill in the whole, as a whole. So the bill, the budget suggested is 5.8 trillion. So that's up by 7.15% from from last year and around 50 billion of that will be dedicated towards climate related measures including the energy sector obviously the energy sector and and combating climate change has been quite key in joe biden's presidency it's likely to somewhat define his presidency um but and and normally we'd expect to see these sort of key energy policies enacted within his budget proposals uh, to sort of show that ambition but largely they're missing um and that is because they're stuck in the Build Back Better bill, which is still being um, discussed in the Senate, really. Uh, obviously, it passed through the House in last November, but got caught up in the Senate due to um, uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia holding up due to concerns around inflation. But we all know, really, that it's due to his obsession with uh, coal power and how the bill likely will um, see the kind of that accelerate even faster. Difficult thing. So... Biden basically didn't want to get ahead of the congressional negotiations is what he said and to sort of preserve as much flexibility as he could in these ongoing negotiations. Ironically, so the budget itself is going to be full of things that will get sort of watered down or ruled out of the final spending plan. It's the things that he's left out that he'll care most about uh, materialising. So what's not included things like his $12,000 incentive for electric vehicles. Um, so that would basically decrease the cost of purchasing one by $12,000 for each EV owner. Things like $65 billion uh, budget for power transmission reliance. Um, well, if that goes, huge... I mean, if that goes, then then this uh, the whole EV apple cart in America is thrown into complete disarray. There, I mean, we know that if you don't have sufficient incentive, and if it's not free of restrictions, that you don't jump by five six seven percent of each of cars per annum to evs um you you jump by three four percent so natural consumer uh, enthusiasm isn't enough to get us uh, through to evs fast enough so i mean maybe that would be a self-fulfilling prophecy everyone of the american car companies say 50 percent of cars will be evs by 2030 whereas in the rest of the world, they're pushing 100%. Um, and maybe this is self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't get that, um, that 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 through, and that's what happens. Yeah, and and it, you're exactly right. It's the same with the so it's the same with the battery industry and the same with the hydrogen industry. Within the uh, Build Back Better bill, there's around seven billion for battery manufacturing, about eight billion for for the production of four hydrogen hubs, um, which are obviously going to be key to actually push um, to creating those industries. They could get through through other legislation if Build Back Better does fail, but um, yeah, it will make it a lot more difficult, and it will probably see the the size of those reduced pretty substantially. What what's, um, what's always makes me laugh is the way someone like Manchin comes along and he's gripping tightly to this antique uh, technology, which is going to go out of business, and and. By gripping to it too tightly, America ruins its future. You know, if it if it comes in last in the EV race, if it comes in last in the hydrogen race, it comes in last. It doesn't become the largest um, uh, economy in the world for much longer, and that it's just self defeating. 
Yeah, so so I mean, many people basically thought the Build Back Better bill was going to be dead, uh, with Joe Manchin saying this. But it, the negotiations have reported to start have such a sort of gallop speed again. Uh, obviously, at the moment, the, the the need to reduce costs across the American economy are pretty key, and obviously, they need to get this Build Back Better bill through the Senate before the midterms of November, where the uh, the Republicans are likely to make some gains uh, and actually reduce the chance of Biden pushing through legislation, especially legislation of such. Um, massive, but such a ma- massive financial spend. Um, and in terms of getting Manchin on board, we've actually got a pretty good timing. Um, so this, this new push for energy security, uh, highlighting that domestic renewables obviously can reduce overall costs across the economy. Um, and even Manchin really is starting to lean towards this sort of push towards electric vehicles and tax credits for renewable energy that could help sort of the everyday American and the everyday West Virginian from his own point of view. And we have Putin to thank for that, really. <laughs> yeah, realistically. Uh, and obviously, the, not everything's going to get through. Um, we probably will see a bill that's reduced in size. The rhetoric of the bill itself has changed rather from build back better to sort of build a better America. Um, so putting much more focus on domestic production. Um, and a lot of the things, even within the existing bill, uh, existing budget um, proposals are pushing towards domestic manufacture, um, largely within solar manufacturing, obviously, as the US looks to wean itself off uh, Chinese imports for solar panels. Obviously, that's something that uh, almost is being going to be accelerated by the uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, the US not wanting to have any sort of dependence on uh, China for its energy economy. Um, In the same way that Europe should have thought about it sooner, regards Russia, um, America should have thought about solar panels and China sooner. If if they'd have kept their own their own solar panel industry healthy. Um, they wouldn't be in this situation. So, so what is the status of um, solar manufacturing support in this budget? Because I got the impression it was just a $200 million solar accelerator fund. Yes, you're right, just $200 million. So it's pretty minor, really. And obviously, a lot of the support for the solar industry will come through tax incentives that are being proposed in the Build Back Better bill. And, that's what, and that is pretty much what the solar industry is going to be relying upon. Same with wind, same with hydrogen, same with batteries. If we're looking at what's actually been proposed in the bill, we've got the $200 million for solar manufacturing, uh, the sort of the largest chunk really goes towards what's known as clean energy research. Uh, so that will probably be investing in projects within these companies to bring on better and uh, more effective products. Um, there's been an establishment of a grid de- development office, um, so f- funding towards advanced uh, research projects. So that will largely focus around things like nuclear fusion uh, and other types of um, research around projects that aren't near to commercialization yet. Um, there's there's money going into speeding up development processes and the planning processes. Obviously, we've seen the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management struggle with that in terms of offshore wind. So hopefully, we'll see a lot of red tape removed there. Um, there's 100 million for the electrification of low-income homes, uh, and there's around 800 million for electric vehicle infrastructure. But that is such a small amount compared to the um, what was proposed in the original Build Back Better bill. Um, and another another thing to really point out is that is that. Biden's looking to increase the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28%. What we really hope that this doesn't see is that the investor-owned utilities that are obviously going to be impacted by this to slow down their plans to actually shift towards uh, clean energy and actually reduce their levels of investment in new transmission infrastructure. Because without uh, the incentives in place for this new transmission infrastructure or for these new energy projects, it's, it's simply going to be too expensive for them to to transition. Um, so there, there, uh, so there doesn't a rock and a hard place. You, you, where's the money going to come from? Don't worry, I'm going to raise the taxes. You know, and the Republicans all—it's toxic as soon as you say you're going to raise the taxes, especially on companies. Um, 
I mean, raising the taxes can work for these utilities, but only if the, fu- the funding from um, these taxes is then funneled back into supporting the projects that the utilities are using to fund. Essentially, raising the taxes is a great idea if you can align the spend with um, with the government's objectives to decarbonise these utilities. Basically, a utility needs to be rewarded um, and making a net gain if, uh, from this tax hike if if the um, through sort of benefits in terms of um, uh, yeah, tax credits towards generation in terms of solar and wind power. But interestingly, the Republicans always push money uh, at R and D, and and that basically means it goes to companies, which means it goes to people like Manchin, um, perhaps not Manchin, but you know people like that. So so they consistently shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, every every um, developer, solar developer we talk to as clients say. Well, we don't want to buy that stuff from First Solar because it's it's all a bit modern and thin film. It doesn't really give you a high enough yield, and it's not cheap enough. We, you know, we'd rather have Chinese panels. <laughs> and yet, everything that you buy from China now is meant to be toxic because it, politically it's not correct. And if you put everything into R and D, you say you're saying, yeah, in five years we'll have better panels than China. Maybe, perhaps, maybe a small company will. But not not enough to make a difference. It's it's um, it's their way of investing. The, the whole point of putting it into R and D is to get Republicans on side. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the other thing that we've seen, yeah, through through the bill is, is this placeholder measure. So it's called something called a deficit neutral reserve fund, which essentially just means that Congress will have a greater ability to push through the legislation that that they can firmly say will reduce costs across the, uh, across the economy so that does actually open up a lot of opportunity to invest in, in renewable energy um through yeah sort of the, these direct investments that, that republicans probably will get on board with okay so mixed bag some of that will go through it's all uh, it's all over once um the midterms come in everybody believes um well we'll we'll, we'll perhaps have a longer look at it then uh, meantime our, our last visit is looking at the chinese Solar production. Andrees, you've written a piece on that this week. Yeah, the, the Ministry of in- Industry and Information Technology in China had the uh, the good grace to um, give us some nice detailed figures on, on solar manufacturing in January and February of this year, which they, they didn't do last year, so they're being a bit more detailed than usual. In the first two months of this year, they, China produced 40 gigawatts of silicon wafers and about 40 gigawatts of solar cells, and seemingly a bit less of modules and uh, polysilicon and inverters but if you take that number as 40 gigawatts because after all uh, modules there's a lot more module production in other countries compared to china's dominance of cells and wafers then that that kind of points to 40 gigawatts just from china um, in every two months so that's 240 gigawatts this year Um, and maybe that comes to 260 gigawatts manufactured on the whole planet once you include First Solar and Hanha Q-cells and all of the other smaller Western companies. And is there enough polysilicon for that? Uh, Let me do a little bit of mental calculation. (laughs) Uh, Yes, there absolutely, there's exactly enough for that. We we expect 720,000 tonnes, which is exactly enough for 240. Isn't it great when an industry adds up? You know, back of a fag packet calculation and the sums add up. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, when you, uh, when you include Han Ha, maybe that actually isn't quite enough for that, for 240. Like, uh, and, and the price, yeah. 
Anyway, but broadly speaking, it is it's all it's all adding up. And of course, but but you're right. The price on selling all of those and installing them all mm. is the issue. Yeah, and that's but that's a little bit different from manufacturing. So, because these are manufacturing figures, it's it's quite interesting to just look at that output. I thought for a change because uh, you know once it gets made, well, it's obviously going to get deployed eventually. And I I think. I think once it gets manufactured, if it's being manufactured in China, some of it will, especially in Q4, will get deployed only a few months after it's actually been made. Uh, but the rest, in the rest of the world, it could be up to a year from the factory to the to final deployment if it has to be shipped over to Chile or something. So basically, when I see 240 gigawatts, I think that's the 2023 installation number. Uh, Rather than the 2022 yeah. number. Yeah, uh, and the 2022 number, of course. Well, then you look at the 2021 um, output figures, and that was uh, <clears throat> 182 gigawatts of modules, 200 gigawatts of cells. So again, you could add 15 gigawatts maybe of uh, non-Chinese cells, and you get um, more or less what we expect for 2022 deployments, a little bit more than 200 gigawatts. What do you think this does to the actual... Uh, module prices and um, you know we've we've talked to a few um, developers who are really nervous about the price of um, of solar um, and and when they commit for for um, projects that they've got planned what, what do you think it does to the price well we saw that project in India with Skatex solar's 900 megawatts and they delayed their final decision on it because of the module price and since then I haven't actually heard any other similar announcements and India is the I think it is the most module cost sensitive market because all of the other costs are so low so it's certainly a thing with, with things getting delayed and the module prices are going up so maybe I shouldn't be so blasé when I say to a bit over 200 gigawatts in 2022 and 240 in 2023 probably it will get dented to some extent below that yeah I think to, I mean to we need to, for our customers, continue to dig into the price movements and get closer to them because we, we, we've got a feel when when suddenly that price logjam breaks and it stops going up and then when it starts to come down. We need to be able to uh, say it with our hand on our heart and, and mean it um, when that's going to happen. At the same time, even with the price logjam, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that demand has to be restricted to the same level as the previous year because I think the price... You could have increasing supply with the same price just because demand is also increasing. And, and <clears throat> so you could still see a lot of increase. So yeah, I, I went over those figures. It's a lot of nice little details in the article. What else did I do? And then and then I, com and then I brought it back to the US and said, well, that's the Chinese. They're building, they, they've probably already reached 300 gigawatts of manufacturing capacity, which doesn't get used at 100%. But, um, and then I said, oh, India is working towards 30 gigawatts by 2024 in the best case for the cell line while still importing polysilicon and then there's and then there's the us which as we just mentioned it's just it's it's not really getting there is it so that's right it's an industry that's the future it's definitely um gonna grow we've identified it in our ape uh, 2.0 report as growing faster than any other renewable so america is of course not investing in it I mean, I actually mentioned the old Solar Energy for Manufacturing for America Act by Senator Ossoff, who was one of those new ones elected in late 2021 in Georgia. Um, 
and it was I actually I, I never thought of it this way but he he was offering uh, 11 cents per watt for modules 7 cents per watt for a different type of module um, 4 cents per watt for cells 12 dollars per square meter for wafers 3 dollars per kilogram if you add that all up it's almost the like that 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 almost adds up to the cost of a module <laughs> You know, if you add it, add it up per watt, so it would have been incredible. But then what they did was they rolled that act into the budget reconciliation, which never gets passed because Senator Manchin is still, you know, having fun halving it and halving it again. And and uh, yes, do you, but we probably think Senator Manchin will agree to something, but it's just going to be very small, isn't it? Oh, I mean, I don't know how the um, the process for re-electing senators work. But, um, you know, in uh, other parts of the world, you just take them off the paper next time and, uh, and, and hope you get someone else in. Well, he's no, in, the thing like is, he's in, in West, he's in West Virginia, where two-thirds of the people voted for Trump. So, so yes, he might, he might lose the Democrat primary for being too centrist, but then whoever beats him won't win the election, I think. So, there you go. All right, uh, it's not, not going to predict American politics on here. Simon, um, for our last item of the day, uh, take us to what's uh, dragged your attention. Well, it, it was this uh, $50 billion hydrogen deal in Europe uh, made by um, Andrew Twiggy Forrest of Fortescue with E.ON. Uh, Harry, I think you wrote about that. Yeah, yeah, it was a great deal, actually. Um, and it's it built really, built really well on what we were talking about last week in terms of Germany look, starting to look to hydrogen rather than more natural gas to, um, to um, eliminate its dependence on Russian imports. What we saw, yeah, what we saw this week was, was Fortescue signing this supply deal with E.ON for up to 5 million tonnes of green hydrogen per year from around 2030, which alone could replace around um, one third of, of Germans' imp, uh, imports of Russian natural gas. Um, so yes, it's a huge It's a long deal. way off though, 2030, isn't it? A lot can happen between now and then. It, it certainly is. Um, but I think it, what it does show is it shows that there is going to be this market already there. I mean, it's, it's just one of many deals that Germany is supplying. We've seen deals signed over the past few weeks with the UAE, with Norway. Um, this probably is going to be the largest. And I mean, 5 million tonnes of green hydrogen per year um, will come online, come online I, in stages. I love stages. those co comments from Forrest saying that he can supply all the world's energy from Australia. I mean, if you look at it in terms of the, the uh, theoretical potential of Australia in terms of its solar and wind resources, they probably can if they, if they also <laughs> build uh, offshore wind. Obviously, it's not going to be the case. Um, but I think Australia, as, as we've outlined in our uh, annual primary electricity forecast, will become probably one of the largest beneficiaries of the energy transition despite the best intentions of scott morrison trying to keep his coal oh, and natural oh, gas businesses alive yeah. um yeah. the the uh, force are one of the many companies um who are really driving forward um the but, but of one of the issues is is transporting hydrogen we know this is an issue um, and and you've 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 you kind of uh, dressed over it a little bit. I mean, we it, probably not good enough to sort of transport it um, as ammonia economically yet. Um, probably impossible to for the amount of energy you use to turn hydrogen into liquid hydrogen uh, yet, uh, and and unlikely to be. Um, uh, that's probably unlikely to be economical. Are there other approaches? I mean, uh, there was one um, that's happening in the Middle East for transporting hydrogen with some. Uh, with with another chemical that you uh, instead of ammonia that um, that you 
produce hydrogen, uh, you carry hydrogen with, because you, you, it's all about the, getting the energy density for shipment, isn't it? Yeah, so in, the UAE is essentially looking at this thing called LOHC, which is a another way of basically binding hydrogen molecules to another carrier and then uh, separating them once they are um, in... When you say separate them, what's that, another electrolysis approach? Uh, no, it'd be, it'll be a more a sort of a different type of chemical reaction. Uh, it won't be nearly as intensive as electrolysis. Um, ammonia obviously has the benefit that ammonia can be used as ammonia as an end product. So you can run ammonia through fuel cells. You can, uh, um, to some extent, burn ammonia. You can, and you can also use it directly as fertilizer. You can uh, in fertilizer and things like that. So there is a actual demand for green ammonia, where, where otherwise there would be a demand for natural gas, which would then be used to either maybe produce ammonia or within those industries. Um, but Forrest is not an idiot, and he's sitting here saying it will end up as liquid hydrogen. Yeah, and, and I think he's right. Um, I mean, when you look at the barriers that are preventing us from um, from actually do, uh, producing liquid, liquid hydrogen on a commercial basis, they're largely engineering issues that where we haven't really been throwing money at um, around for the past sort of, 10, 15 years. So uh, it's, just, it, it's largely about achieving the right temperatures and pressures and... Uh, at at the scale that we're talking about and at the scale where we can actually then transport it. Um, the interesting thing will be what energy requirement there is to to keep hydrogen at uh, a liquefied state. Obviously, if that energy demand is going to be high enough, then it might actually eliminate over certain distances the benefits of keeping it liquid and it might be better to turn it into um, ammonia. Um, so it, it becomes, it becomes the, uh, an equation of that really. And the more efficiently you can keep hydrogen in liquid form and insulate it, then that's, again, an engineering issue that probably I, I think will see liquid hydrogen become the way hydrogen is transported most of the time around the world, um, probably you, and how it's used in sectors like aviation. But that's not um, going to happen before 2035, is it? Um, I don't know. I think that there's certain, there's certain projects that are underway at the moment where we're starting to see it demonstrated on small scales. Um and I think there there are many companies that think that we probably can do it. Slightly I mean, you are after all taking energy away from the gas, you know, and then you end up with heat being exported, and you you can use that heat and get some payback there. But but you're using energy to to complete the process anyway. Yes, absolutely, and so it's not it's not ever going to be 100 percent efficient. But but not, we're not used to any sort of energy sector where it's 100 percent efficient. Um, and when you're looking at exports, there's always going to be um, some losses associated with it. So I yeah, think but these are going to be huge. I mean, round trip efficiency losses from solar as hitting the planet in Australia to hydrogen going through a fuel cell in Germany. Uh, the, you know, you, you 98%, 88% losses or something. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that into the, to that sense, it's not that economical. But largely, if you're talking about being able to produce hydrogen at such a low cost and at such scale, which you will be able to do in Australia, then that's why Australia are looking at um, Europe for these imports. I imagine that because Australia is obviously, in terms of having such a, a low population density, is quite an advanced economy. That's why it's so far ahead in these discussions. I imagine as we move towards 2030, we'll see discussions ramp up in North Africa, in Kazakhstan, in these other places that are closer to Europe, looking to supply Europe with uh, green hydrogen through maybe a pipeline. And I think Australia probably will be focused more on that Southeast Asian market. But another um, another market that's opened up courtesy of Mr. Putin. Yes, exactly. Um, I think it was a market I mean, that was going to open up anyway, but I think Putin has accelerated it. I think that, Russia that, exactly. Probably, he's, he's been the trigger for so much change. 
the difficult the difficulty for Russia really is if you if you were looking at it from an objective point of view from a European perspective, Russia has a great potential to be um, obviously has been an en- a hub of the energy industry in the past, but and it, it would have the potential to be a hub of the energy industry moving forward if they were prepared to invest in wind and solar. Um, but they simply aren't doing that, and they are finding themselves falling far and far behind. And I don't believe that, and I don't think that the uh, that Europe's memory is going to be particularly short about what's happening in the Ukraine at the moment. I don't see. Well, let's hope not. I mean, f- I, that's the, the worrying thing. I, I get worried that the energy markets will just quietly cough and and move on um, after all that the Ukrainians have suffered. Um, and because they have done before, when other countries have been invaded by Russia. There is one thing that makes me think Russia might actually adopt renewables, which is that they're going to they're in this close relationship with China, which is of course a massive force for renewables, including the manufacturing. Well, I, I think they will, but I think they have to go bankrupt first. I think that that once you can't sell oil and gas um, to the rest of the world, I mean. Number one, we forecast that there would be an increase in the use of uh, gas in the world. We we saw that coming. There was always going to be a, a price problem around gas. Um, the the issue was, you know, we, we didn't think they'd throw a war in alongside it and exacerbate the, the issue. But even so, there was always going to be a volatile market going right through 2030, 2035. Um, when that market is over, Russia won't have anything. It'll have nothing to sell. And it'll have to apply... Uh, a lot of its highly educated scientists to the problem. And its neighbour, China, will be only too delighted to export manufacturing to Russia if Russia's up to the task. So uh, I believe it will get there, but late and coming in on the back of being a poorer country rather than a richer country. I mean, they they actually already have a little solar manufacturer with like a gigawatt or two, and it's it's quite good technology. It's just Sorry, like, it's it's how many gigawatts? One or two gigawatts. <laughs> okay, and this is the heterojunction. Yeah, uh, the the Hevel yeah. Solar guys. Okay, yeah, uh, and and if they make a lot of money, then uh, I'm sure uh, Putin will take it away from them and uh, discourage anyone else from making a lot of money. But but at least the uh, experience will be there, and they can and it can um, uh, go, it can just cross cross fertilize other ideas. And you just think market. if they if they already have a heterojunction company in 2020. Or whenever it was, with no real interest from the state, you know, there's potential there. Yeah, no, and, and you're right. It is they have good scientists. They can get their heads around any technology uh, as soon as there's sufficient incentive. Um, all of this uh, in the issue this week, um, and in and some of this in our uh, paid section in our research papers. Um, and you can find it at www.rethinkresearch.biz. Click on the energy button uh, and then flick between um, between weekly analysis and forecasts and data. Um, and that's all we have time for this week. Uh, looking forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you.